It must be said that the success or failure in recapturing Guadalcanal Island and the vital naval battle related to it is the fork in the road which leads to victory for them or for us. As a Japanese staff assessment of the Guadalcanal fight following the defeat of their October offensive, it's victory for them or us. Thus, despite once again failing to take Guadalcanal from the Marine defenders, the Japanese are gearing up for another attempt on the island. This time they're going all in, and once again Captain Joe Foss will be in the thick of it. This is the Aviation Medals of Honor podcast. Even as the battered Japanese 2nd Infantry Division retreated from their failed October 25th attack, planning is starting for another attempt on the island. The Imperial Navy and Army were finally in agreement. Guadalcanal had turned into the decisive battle they had been looking for. One that, if victorious, could possibly lead to a negotiated treaty consolidating Japanese gains in the Pacific. Strategy was never going to work. They had vastly underestimated American resolve following Pearl Harbor. But that was their hope anyway, for one crushing victory that would make the Americans question whether the fight was worth it. So strategically, the Japanese are working off the wrong premise, but they'll compound that error with a couple of wrong tactical assumptions derived out of their October defeat as well. One was that the October ground offensive had nearly succeeded. It had. Not that it wasn't a vicious fight, and there were some limited penetrations of the defensive line of the already legendary Lieutenant Colonel Chesty Puller's battalion. But the Marine positions and the all-important airfield were never in real danger. Another wrong assumption was that they had sunk up to four carriers and a battleship at the Battle of Santa Cruz. Japanese did enjoy an advantage in naval combat power, but just not as dominating as they thought. However, in their eyes, the situation looked ripe for another attempt on Guadalcanal, and the Japanese set a mid-December target date for a ground offensive. The Japanese Army would commit two more divisions to the fight, the 38th Infantry Division and the 51st Infantry Division. The ground forces were available, although the 51st had to be pulled from the New Guinea campaign, but the crux of the problem remained. How to get those troops and supplies to the island through the Cactus Air Force? and its SBD dive bombers and TBF Avenger torpedo bombers, currently operating under the umbrella of the Wildcat fighters at VMF-121 and VMF-212. The only thing that had worked so far to shut down Cactus was the battleship shelling of Henderson Field back on 13 October. Thus, the Japanese plans began to take shape around landing troops from a large convoy in mid-November which would be preceded by increased air attacks and a battleship barbarant like was successful back in October. They could land that convoy, which included heavy artillery, then they could shell Henderson from the ground. Combined with a planned expansion of air bases in the Central Solomons, it's hoping that the pressure on Henderson from the ground and air will allow follow-on convoys of heavy transports down the slot to support a mid-December assault. It's not a bad plan, and it builds off the only real success of October, the battleship bombardment. But that first convoy has to make it through. While General Vandegrift, 
the Marine commander on the ground at Guadalcanal, attempts to take advantage of the Japanese losses of October and the timely arrival of some of his own reinforcements by pushing out from his perimeter around Henderson in late October and into early November. To the flyers of the Cactus Air Force, this period proved to be a welcome break from the intensive combat of the preceding weeks. When the fighting waned on 26 October, Cactus was down to 30 operational aircraft, 12 Wildcats, 11 SBD Dauntless dive bombers, 6 of the Army Air Force's P-39, P-400s, and 1 F-4F Photobird. However, replacements are more readily available than they were back in August. Marine Air Group 11, MAG-11, shows up in theater and starts feeding its squadrons into the fight, adding the SBD-equipped VMSB-132 and VMF-112 and its Wildcats to Henderson in the first days of November. By mid-November, MAG-11 would add an additional dive bomber and fighter squadron to the fight, as well as the Marines' first TBM Avenger torpedo bomber squadron, which had made a hasty conversion from SBDs in just three weeks. The new squadrons allowed some worn-out units to depart, notably VMF-212, who leave for home on 10 November after six months overseas. Another runway, called Fighter 2, is cut from the jungle, as Fighter 1 had been plagued with drainage problems that made it unusable after the frequent heavy rains. Cactus replaces its commander as well, as Brigadier General Lewis Woods takes over from Brigadier General Roy Geiger. Overall, it's a big rotation of planes and personnel, and while Cactus is still outnumbered, they are ready for another round. Their primary opponents, the land-based units of the Japanese Navy's 11th Air Fleet, based out of Rabul, rotates and replaces as well. It had suffered heavy losses in October, losing roughly one-third of its strength. While aircraft were able to be quickly replaced, aircrew were another story. The Japanese have suffered a much larger percentage of aircrew losses than the Americans, and incoming replacements are not of the same quality. Joe Foss writes about it in his book, Joe Foss Flying Marine. Quote, How the enemy replaced his plane losses was a mystery. Certainly they were heavy, yet he sent his zeros over almost endlessly. After a time, the strain showed, not in planes, but in pilots. They were obviously less experienced less well-grounded in tactics. The second team, Marines called them. Unquote. In the midst of the shuffling of forces, there is limited air action to close out October and to begin November. However, the destroyers of the Tokyo Express get back to work, and several night runs are successfully made delivering troops of the 38th Division and their supplies to the island. Airborne on 7 November, Captain Foss lose a gaggle of wildcats against shipping spotted in the vicinity of Florida Island, northeast of Guadalcanal. They run into a group of six zero float planes, allied codenamed Rufy, and splash all six, then watch in horror and amazement as all six unbuckle from their parachutes and fall to their deaths. Foss is credited with one Rufy in that engagement. Regrouping from that attack, Foss spots another float plane, this one a biplane reconnaissance aircraft known by the Allies as a peak, and moves in for the easy kill. The little biplane proves to be a tough opponent, though, and Foss takes numerous hits from its determined rear gunner before finally shooting it down. Foss then adds another Pete for his third kill of the day and 19th overall, tying him with Major John L. Smith as Guadalcanal's leading ace. 
By now, separated from the rest of his flight, he heads home alone. But damage from the second engagement catches up with Joe and his Wildcat. The engine quits, and he glides down for a water landing. He describes the experience. Quote, The tail hooked into the water. The plane skipped, hit with a solid smack the second time, nosed over like a brick, and went down instantly, nose first. Water poured in so fast it almost knocked me out. I had forgotten to pull the leg straps on the chute. When the water came in, the buoyancy of the chute and my May West floated me up. I was really buoyant. Trying to get the leg strap off, I bent my foot back, but it went under the seat and caught, so I was unable to get loose. In my excitement, I took in a couple gulps of salt water. I stopped and thought the thing over there, 30 feet under the surface. Listen, dope, I told myself. If you don't quiet down, there isn't going to be any show. Using almost the last of my strength, I pulled down against the unwelcome buoyancy and managed to get my foot out. The water seemed to be crushing me as I shot to the surface. Still, the leg straps of the chute were buckled. They pulled me around and dumped me with my fanny up and my face down in the water. I had a tough time getting the straps unbuckled and the May West out of the way. In the process, I swallowed several more gulps of seawater. The life jacket came up to my ears and almost got away. By the time I had everything fixed okay, my shoes felt too heavy, so I pulled them off and let them sink. There I was, thrashing about in the water. I wasn't sure I stood any chance. It looked like it was about the end of the jig. I don't say my thoughts would have made a $3 book, but plenty of things went through my mind as I looked toward shore. The current was so strong, my best efforts only kept me in the same spot. I wonder what my wife would think when I didn't come back. I wonder if she would ever find out where I went and what became of me, and I wonder what the boys back at camp would say. I would swear that twice shark fins cut the water a few feet away. It was a horrible feeling. I did more praying that afternoon out there than I ever did in my life. Poor old Joe finally got it. I could imagine the boys saying, he's shark bait. Every time I put out my arm to swim, I expected to draw back a stub. After a while, I thought of the chlorine capsule in my pocket and broke it for protection. It seemed to keep the sharks, if any, away. I continued splashing hopelessly. In an hour or so, it was dark. I was headed for a point that looked close, but the longer I swam, the further away it seemed. In the dark, I could see the glowing, phosphorescent patches in the water. I thought they were made by sharks' fins, and they nearly scared me to death. Unquote. What a horrible experience that must have been for the many aviators from both sides during the course of the war that found themselves alone in a vast ocean with nothing but a life vest. Luckily for Joe, he'd been spotted by friendly locals from a nearby island. After dark, when it's safe for them to do so, they row out and rescue him. The isolated group of expat planters and missionaries welcome him with a feast of steak, eggs, pineapple, and papaya, what he called the best meal he had on Guadalcanal. These aren't coast watchers, though, and they have no radio to contact friendlies. Luckily for Joe, the next day a wildcat spots his parachute that he had saved and hung out to dry. Catalina shows up a couple hours later 
and Joe is back on Guadalcanal less than 24 hours after he was shot down. Next day, it's back to the routine, and he is back in the air on an uneventful patrol. Several important things have happened in the meantime, though. Japanese commander Yamamoto has put out his op order revolving around the large convoy scheduled for 13 November, or Z-Day. The plan calls for increased airstrikes beginning Z-3, 10 November. On Z-1, 12 November, a battleship task force will bombard Henderson. With the Cactus Air Force suppressed, a convoy of 11 transports will push down the slot on the 13th, followed by a cruiser task force that will again bombard Henderson. Unfortunately for the Japanese, coast watchers are reporting the increased ship activity, and signals intelligence intercepts and decodes much of the Japanese plan. On 8 November, Admiral Halsey, who, as you might recall from the previous episode, is in an overall command of the Guadalcanal fight, is briefed on the Japanese plan. It's not perfect, as intelligence rarely is, but Halsey has the gist of the operation, as well as the date for the convoy, 13 November. One big missing piece in the intelligence picture was the battleship bombardment group. The Americans were expecting carrier airstrikes on Z-1, vice the battleship bombardment. But while he's aware of Japanese intentions, Halsey has limited options with which to counter. He has two naval groups in his area of operation. The first is Task Force 67 under Admiral Kelly Turner. It's a supply convoy of transports and includes a protective force of two heavy and three light cruisers, plus 13 destroyers, and is scheduled to offload 7,000-plus combat and support troops on 12 November. Given that those troops may be needed to repel a Japanese invasion force, and the task force should be clear by the time the Japanese force arrives on the 13th, Halsey clears them to continue on mission. Halsey's second naval group is Task Force 16, under Admiral Kincaid, it consists of the sole surviving U.S. carrier in the South Pacific, the Damage Enterprise, which is undergoing repairs incurred at the Battle of Santa Cruz on New Caledonia, some 800-plus miles to the south of Guadalcanal. The Enterprise Battle Group includes the battleships Washington and South Dakota. Task Force 16 is Halsey's heavy punch, but they are out of position, and Enterprise still damaged forward elevator limits her combat effectiveness. Regardless, Halsey orders them to sea, and on the 11th, Task Force 16 is steaming up from the south to try to be in place to disrupt the Japanese landings on the 13th. Ready to punch a big hole in the Americans' plans is the unknown Japanese battleship task force. What would come to be called the Naval Battle of Guadalcanal kicks off on November 10th, with the Japanese putting up a large fighter sweep as part of their plan to disrupt Henderson operations ahead of Z-Day. Cactus scrambles fighters, but the opposing forces fail to meet in the heavy clouds around Henderson. The next day, the 11th, the Japanese send nine Val dive bombers and 18 zeros south. It's not a good day for Cactus's Wildcat defenders as they lose six Wildcats with four of those pilots killed in action against Japanese losses of two zeros. A second raid followed, consisting of 25 Betty bombers and 26 zeros. The Americans claim four Bettys, but lose an additional three Wildcats and two pilots. It's an unusual day of heavy losses for the defenders, but there's no time to mourn as the chess pieces are in motion at sea. The next day, November 12th, 
starts out with a major air action. Japanese react to Admiral Turner's Task Force 67 transports unloading in the vicinity of Lunga Point and send 16 Bettys loaded as torpedo bombers and escorted by 30 Zeros against the American ships. Foss is airborne, part of the 16 Wildcats from BMF-121 and BMF-112, along with 8 Army P-39s that intercept the inbound raid. Between the American fighters and ships anti-aircraft fire, 11 of the Bettys are shot down, and the rest so badly damaged they will be written off. Seven zeros are claimed as well. Reeling from their losses, the remaining 11th Air Fleet Bettys will sit out the next two days, ending their role in the naval battle of Guadalcanal. In exchange, Cactus has lost three Wildcats, although all their pilots are rescued, and one P-39 with a pilot killed in action. Boss gets credit for three kills, two Bettys and a zero. At 22 kills, He's now the leading American ace of the war. The only damage to the American ships was to the cruiser San Francisco, which suffered minor damage when hit by a burning Betty. It's a big victory for Cactus, especially coming on the heels of the losses of the day prior. There's more good news for Cactus, coming in the form of the arrival of additional reinforcements. 10 SPDs, 6 Avengers, and 6 Wildcats. Also arriving at Henderson for the first time, are eight P-38 fighters of the Army Air Forces. Following the attack, Turner's transports are able to resume their unloading, but another problem is coming. Cactus's scout aircraft have spotted a Japanese surface group inbound. It's the previously unknown battleship group under Vice Admiral Hirake Habe, consisting of two battleships, one light cruiser, and 11 destroyers, although reports of a second carrier group also come in. There is a carrier out there, the Juno, the sole Japanese carrier operational after the Battle of Santa Cruz, but the reported sightings are false as it sits about 200 miles to the north. Halsey's main force, with the Enterprise and two battleships, is still hundreds of miles away and can't influence the fight. If the Japanese force is able to bombard Henderson, it may be a repeat of October where Cactus's anti-shipping capabilities were severely hampered. If that happens, the Japanese are able to land their convoy mostly unopposed. They will be able to put Henderson under indirect artillery fire from the land, and Henderson may be effectively shut down. Admiral Kelly Turner makes the hard call, maybe the single most important of the campaign. He strips his protective cruisers and destroyers from the transports and sends them to intercept. It's one of those moments in history where a commander turns to his subordinate and says, Hold the line, with both of them knowing the likely outcome. After all, the American cruiser's heaviest guns were not capable of penetrating a battleship's side armor. The fate of Guadalcanal rests on the outnumbered and outgunned force of five cruisers and eight destroyers under the command of Admiral Callahan. The Japanese steam into the slot between Sabo Island and Guadalcanal early in the morning of the 13th. Bad weather and complete no-moon darkness has scattered their formation somewhat, but they aren't expecting contact. That's a bit strange, since they knew of the cruiser force in the vicinity. After all, they had just lost a whole bunch of Bettys attacking it. But for some reason, maybe arrogance, the consensus was that the Americans would depart the area. So Abe's ships are scattered, 
and their big guns are loaded with fragmentation rounds for bombardment, vice the armor-piercing rounds they would want for ship-to-ship combat. Callahan isn't doing much better than Abe at command and control. First of all, he hasn't placed his ships with the best and latest radars at his vanguard. This is Callahan's first combat command, arguably one that should have gone to a second-in-command, the experienced Admiral Scott. Callahan doesn't have a firm grasp on the principles of radar, which should be fair to him could probably be said about many of the Navy's senior leaders at this point in the war. Callahan is attempting to run a visual fight. He gives some confusing orders, and the U.S. formation also becomes scattered. Any advantage or surprise the Americans had is lost as opposing ships converge, then begin to pass in the night. Still, both Callahan and Abe hesitate giving orders to fire, unsure of their own ship's positions. I can imagine it was a bizarre feeling for the common sailor on both sides, sitting at their battle station on deck, watching the shadows pass in the night and waiting for the order to fire. At some point, 0148, on 13 November to be exact, two of the Japanese ships light up their searchlights. Then everyone opens up in what an American officer later called, quote, a barroom brawl after the lights had been shot out, unquote. One U.S. destroyer, the USS Laffey, passes within 20 feet of the battleship Hia, saved only by the fact that the Hia couldn't depress her guns enough to hit the American ship. Well, momentarily saved anyway. As soon as she clears the Japanese battleship, the Laffey is taken under fire and sinks soon after. After 40 minutes of fighting, the two forces break contact. The Japanese superiority in night fighting, plus their numerical and firepower advantage, has inflicted severe damage on the U.S. force. One light cruiser and one destroyer are the only American ships that could still be called combat capable. The Japanese path to Henderson is clear, but Abe hesitates. He's wounded. His flagship, the battleship Hia, has been damaged. While in no danger of sinking, a lucky hit aft has damaged the Hia steering, drastically affecting her speed and maneuverability. Regardless, Abe still has an additional battleship, a cruiser, and eight destroyers combat capable and with a clear path to Henderson. But in a momentous decision, turns his force around and abandons the bombardment. A message is sent back to an infuriated Yamamoto, who is forced to turn around the transport convoy already en route. While his task group has suffered greatly, it's not in vain, as Callahan and his force have saved Henderson. Callahan doesn't live to see it, though. He has killed one of his flagship, USS San Francisco, and struck multiple times by the HIA's main guns. His second-in-command, Admiral Scott, is killed as well, likely when his flagship, the cruiser USS Atlanta, was struck by friendly fire. Callahan and Scott will both be recipients of posthumous medals of honor. Daybreak on the 13th, and Iron Bottom Sound is full of flotsam and jetsam, sinking and damaged ships, and survivors and bodies in the water. The cruiser Atlanta is still afloat, but will sink later that day adding to the four U.S. destroyers lost overnight. The cruiser Portland turned circles, unable to steer, but still shooting and sinking a damaged Japanese destroyer. That destroyer is the only hold loss for the Japanese so far, 
But that's about to change, as rising off Henderson Field are the Flyers at Cactus. They find the damaged Hia, still having difficulty steering, lipping off to the north. The American Flyers pounce on her. Marine SBDs and TBFs, plus Navy TBFs off the Enterprise, staging through Henderson by 56 sorties during the day. Some Zeros are sent down to cover the Japanese battleship's retreat. The Wildcats are waiting and shoot down eight. After nine hours attack, the Hia is ordered abandoned. She took 85 hits of various calibers during the naval battle, and at least three bombs and four torpedoes from the air attacks, but the battleship would finally be abandoned and sink overnight. While the battleship bombardment didn't go as planned, the Japanese weren't giving up. Yamamoto sends a cruiser group to bombard Henderson that same night, the 13th. This time Halsey has no cars to play. The two battleships of the Enterprise Task Force are still far south of Guadalcanal and can intercept. The survivors of the previous night are in no shape to fight against the four heavy and two light cruisers, plus six destroyers inbound to Henderson. The shelling starts around 0200 on the 14th, throwing 989 8-inch shells at Henderson, but they fail to repeat the success of October. Most miss Henderson's main field in the strike in the vicinity of Fighter 1. A couple of Wildcats are destroyed, several more damaged, but Cactus is operational, and with the rising sun, are off to strike back into Tormentors. Once again, Navy flyers off the Enterprise join in as well, and catch the retreating bombardment force sinking one cruiser and heavily damaging another, but that's not the real prize. The real prize was the 11 transports steaming south under the assumption that Cactus was out of commission. It wasn't. Cactus and Enterprise flyers hammer the convoy. They sink six transports before the end of the day and force one more to turn around with heavy damage. Airborne covering the last strike of the fading day is Joe Foss. He has turned over lead of his flight to Lieutenant Colonel Joe Bauer. Bauer was about to go home. His VMF-212 had departed the island several days prior, but Bauer, in his role as fighter commander of Cactus, had stayed behind for a few more days. He approaches Captain Foss late in the afternoon of the 14th, telling him that he wants, quote, one more shot at the bastards, unquote. He asks Foss to join his flight. Foss gives him the lead instead. In a heartbreaking letter to Bauer's parents, Captain Foss describes the action. February 14th, 1943. Dear Mr. and Mrs. Bauer, Today I received your letter of January 19th, 1943, regarding your son, Colonel Joe. On November 14th, 1942, we had a heavy enemy action up the line from Guadalcanal. All day we bombed, torpedoed, and strafed their ships by air. Late in the afternoon, we had several of their troop transports dead in the water. About 4 o'clock, I received orders to take my flight and escort the dive bombers to that area and if enemy air activity permitted, I was to strafe transports. Just before I took off, Colonel Joe told me he was going along and see just how my boys worked. He said that I wasn't going to get all the fun alone, so we all took off. Upon arriving there, we found several troop transports dead in the water and smoking. Some warships were cruising among them to pick up survivors and to ward off our air attacks. Tom Furlow and I followed the colonel and circled high above. 
The three of us circled for some time and watched our planes attack and start to leave. All the surrounding air seemed clear from enemy air activity, so down we came and strafed the ships below. We came out right on the water and headed for home. All of a sudden, tracers shot over my head. Upon looking back, I saw two Jap Zeros diving on us, shooting. At once, Joe turned and headed straight at one. Both he and the Jap were shooting everything. Then, bang, and the Zero blew up, and Joe zoomed up and made a turn towards home. Tom and I chased the other Zero towards Tokyo, but couldn't catch him. Upon returning to the scene of Joe's action, I was unable to spot him. I saw an oil slick about a mile south of the spot where the Zero had gone in, and upon circling it saw Joe swimming with his life jacket on. I went right down to within a few feet of him, and he waved with both arms and jumped up out of the water. Then he waved me towards home. He was in good shape, no cuts visible. I tried to give him my boat, but it wouldn't come out, so I gave full throttle towards home. I landed and took off at once in a duck. Duck was a nickname for the Grumman J2F amphibian aircraft used for search and rescue. I landed and took off at once in a duck with Major Joe Renner. We were within about 10 miles of Joe, and it got pitch black out, so we had to return home. At daybreak the next morning, November 15th, we were on the scene of the Colonel's landing, my flight of eight and the duck. The only thing in sight was two Jap planes, which we shot down at once. We searched and searched the area, but no sign of a soul. We sent a plane up that landed and talked to the natives on the Russells and told them to be on a sharp lookout for Joe. They found a sergeant pilot that had gone down about five miles further out than Joe at the same time. It took him 49 hours to make the trip, so that there was no doubt but the colonel had the stamina and the heart to make such a trip. So in my way of thinking, one of the following two things happened to your son. Either the Japs happened upon him and took him prisoner, or the sharks got him. If the Japs have him, he is safe, in my mind, as he wore his colonel's bars. The above is as complete as the action really was. To me, Marine Corps Aviation's greatest loss in this war was that of your son Joe. He really had a way, all his own, of getting a tough job done efficiently and speedily, and was admired by all, from the lowest private to the highest general. I am unable to express my sympathies as they really are. I am certain that wherever Joe is today, he is doing things the best way, the Bauer way. Please make a copy of this letter and send it to Harriet. Tell her that my first stop on returning to the States will be to see her. I am hoping that someday Joe will come back. I never lose hope knowing Joe as I did. Sincerely, Joe Foss. Lieutenant Colonel Bauer, the finest fighter pilot on Guadalcanal in the eyes of many, was missing in action. His squadron, BMF-212, pulls into port in California a few days later. The squadron is met by Bauer's wife, who tells them the news. Bauer's sister, Peggy, is there as well, and would say the sight of all those men crying was the most heart-wrenching experience she has ever had. Back on Guadalcanal, Despite only having four transports out of the original 11 still afloat, the Japanese press on. A new bombardment force of one battleship, four cruisers, and nine destroyers heads towards Guadalcanal. 
Halsey is about out of ships to oppose them. He strips the two battleships, the Washington and South Dakota, from Task Force 16, the Carrier Enterprises Task Force, and sends them north to intercept along with four destroyers. Once again, the opposing navies meet in the vicinity of Sabo Island. The leading destroyers are the first to tangle, and it doesn't go well for the Americans, as all four will be sunk. The South Dakota must maneuver to avoid the burning and sinking destroyers, and in doing so highlights herself to the Japanese fleet. She takes over 26 hits. Heavily damaged, she pulls out of the fight, but not before scoring several hits on some Japanese cruisers. While the South Dakota is undergoing its trial by fire, the Washington slips unobserved to within 8,400 yards of the Japanese battleship Kirishima. It's point-blank range for the big Navy guns, and the Washington lights up the Kirishima. She takes 20 16-inch shells and multiple more from Washington's secondary batteries. She's out of the fight and will sink a few hours later. The Washington breaks contact and withdrawals in a successful attempt to draw the surviving Japanese warships away from the wounded South Dakota and Guadalcanal. While the way to Guadalcanal is clear for the four surviving transports, once again the bombardment of Henderson has been stopped and the Japanese transports are going to be in trouble with the sunrise. Knowing they are not leaving Guadalcanal in one piece, the transports beach themselves at 0400 and start unloading. They won't have long, as Henderson's dive bombers are overhead two hours later with the rising sun. The transports and their supplies burn. Overall, out of the 10,000 men on the 11 transports, only two to 3,000 make it ashore. With most of their ammo, supplies, and rations lost, they only add to the misery of the starving Japanese troops already on Guadalcanal. While the dive bombers work over the beach transports, Foss takes a flight of Wildcats out to search for Lieutenant Colonel Bauer. Foss bags a Jake, a reconnaissance seaplane, in the search area for his 23rd kill, but Bauer is nowhere to be found. Joe returns from the flight dejected and not feeling well. It wasn't just because Bauer was missing, though. It was malaria. As he described it, quote, I ached all over, had a fever of 103, and was so sick I thought I was going to die. I imagined I saw and heard airplanes. My head buzzed, my eyes were swollen, and I could not see very well. Unquote. A few days later, on November 19th, he is evacuated off Guadalcanal to New Caledonia. He'll lose 37 pounds in the course of the next several weeks as he battles malaria and dysentery. With a break in the action following the destruction of the Japanese convoy, and with Guadalcanal firmly in Allied hands, the remainder of VMF-121 is given a leave period. They're off to Sydney to try to drink it dry. Feeling better, Foss joins them in Australia on 30 November. Back on Guadalcanal, the Japanese are reeling from the complete loss of the reinforcement convoy. There is still talk of another attempt to take the island, but they can't solve the supply situation. The Japanese destroyer force has been hit hard over the last few months, and the Imperial Navy balks at continued Tokyo Express runs. Attempts are made to bring supplies in by submarine, but the submarines just don't have the cargo capacity to even keep up with the requirements, let alone build up forces. 
Tokyo Express runs do eventually resume, using a new tactic for floating barrels of goods ashore in order to minimize exposure for the hard-pressed destroyer force. It's not a very effective method of delivery, though, and many of the supplies are lost in the attempts. However, the Japanese destroyer force proves it still has teeth when eight of its destroyers on a Tokyo Express run are met by a U.S. force of four cruisers and six destroyers at the Battle of Tassafaranga on 30 November. The outgunned Japanese force takes the first casualty of the night when one destroyer is sunk by U.S. Navy gunfire. The remainder abandon their supply mission and turn for safety. In the meantime, they send out a spread of 44 torpedoes, which devastate the U.S. forces. One cruiser is sunk, and the other three heavily damaged. The remaining Japanese destroyers escape to the north for yet another tactical victory and strategic loss. It's the last major naval engagement of the Guadalcanal campaign, and adds a few hundred more tons of metal to Iron Bottom Sound. By early December 1942, the Japanese are losing about 50 men daily from malnutrition, disease, and allied ground and air attacks. The 6,000 troops of the 38th Division were down to about 250 effectives. The battered 2nd Division could field, at most, 200 combat-capable troops. Meanwhile, the Americans just get stronger. General Vandergriff and the worn-out 1st Marine Division are relieved by Major General Alexander Patch, who has the fresh Americal Division of the U.S. Army with which to take the offense. It's clear the Japanese have lost the logistics battle. On 12 December, the Japanese Navy recommends Guadalcanal be abandoned. The Imperial General Headquarters back in Tokyo agrees, and on 26 December, orders are given for the evacuation of Guadalcanal. Recovered from his bout with malaria, Foss lands back on Guadalcanal on January 1st, ready for round two. He finds a different Guadalcanal than the one he left. As he tells it, quote, Everything had changed in the six weeks we had been away. There was now a field with a steel mat runway instead of the old cow pasture. We had MPs, telephones, good roads, moving pictures, and no excitement. The field had not been bombed since December 14th. There hadn't been a multiple bombing attack since we left. Unquote. He further observed, quote, the hovering canopy of danger which had hung over the island in October and November was gone. Guarded by warships and aircraft, our transports landed reinforcements while the Navy bombarded the new Jap airfield at Munda, 180 miles away, to keep enemy planes on the ground. The Japs were now resorting to submarines to supply their troops. We ruled the air completely. Days of the Tokyo Express a force of one cruiser and four destroyers which landed 900 men on the island nightly, were over. Submarines landed the barest necessities by night, oil drums and small rafts loaded with food. We patrolled the shoreline every morning to shoot up as much of these supplies as possible. Unquote. No longer having to defend Henderson as before, most of the action for the Wildcats involved strafing missions or bomber escort. On one such escort on January 15th, Joe's flight tangles with a group of zeros. He shoots down three to reach 26 kills, matching Captain Eddie Rickenbauer, the American ace of aces from the First World War. On January 25th, Joe flies his last mission on Guadalcanal. Joe and VMF-121 depart the island two days later.
Several boat rides and a relapse of malaria later, Foss arrives home on April 19th. On the 18th of May, 1943, he receives the Congressional Medal of Honor from President Roosevelt. His citation read, For outstanding heroism and courage above and beyond the call of duty as executive officer of a marine fighting squadron at Guadalcanal, Solomon Islands. Engaging in almost daily combat with the enemy from October 9 to November 19, 1942, Captain Foss personally shot down 23 Japanese aircraft and damaged others so severely that their destruction was extremely probable. In addition, during this period, he successfully led a large number of escort missions, skillfully recovering reconnaissance, bombing, and photographic planes as well as surface craft. On January 15, 1943, he added three more enemy aircraft to his already brilliant successes for a record of aerial combat achievement unsurpassed in this war. Boldly searching out an approaching enemy force on January 25, Captain Foss led his eight F-4F Marine planes and four Army P-38s into action and, undaunted by tremendously superior numbers, intercepted and struck with such force that four Japanese fighters were shot down and the bombers were turned back without releasing a single bomb. His remarkable flying skill, inspiring leadership, and indomitable fighting spirit were distinctive factors in the defense of strategic American positions on Guadalcanal. Like the other Guadalcanal heroes before him, Foss is put on a war bond tour. In 1944, he returns to the South Pacific as commander of VMF-115, flying the F-4U Corsair. Air-to-air encounters are rare at that time and place in the war, though and Joe fails to add to his score. Once again, he suffers repeated bouts of malaria and is eventually sent home for stateside duty. With the end of the war, Joe's age catches up with him again. As a reserve officer, Joe needs to obtain a regular commission in order to stay in the Marine Corps. However, by regulations, he's two weeks too old to be considered for a regular commission. Even a Medal of Honor and the support of the Commandant of the Marine Corps can't get him past the bureaucracy. Joe is separated from the Marine Corps and heads back to South Dakota, where he helps stand up the South Dakota Air National Guard, becoming the first commander of the 175th Fighter Squadron. Joe would stay in the Air National Guard, eventually being promoted to Brigadier General. Meanwhile, he is elected as a state representative, then in 1955 takes office as the youngest governor in South Dakota history. Following his career in politics, he's the first commissioner of the American Football League and president of the NRA, among other endeavors. He dies in 2003 at age 87. Following his shoot-down on 14 November, Joe Bowers declared missing in action. He's put up for the Medal of Honor, but is initially downgraded to a Navy Cross. The Marines of Cactus, led by General Geiger, refused to accept that, though and persist in their attempts to get Bauer the recognition they feel he deserved. They are ultimately successful, and Bauer is awarded the Medal of Honor in 1943. His wife declines a White House invitation to receive Joe's medal, replying, quote, No, save it for Joe. He'll pick it up in person. Unquote. But it's not to be. Lieutenant Colonel Bauer is never seen again, and declared dead in 1946. His wife accepts his Medal of Honor in May of that year. 
Cactus fighter pilot Roger Haberman gives a fitting description of Bauer's importance to the campaign. Quote, Morale was vital in October because that was the crisis point for Guadalcanal. The soldiers could see many of the fights and watching them fend off the Japs was a big boost to them and to us. Bauer is an absolute rock. He was responsible for the mental attitude of the fighter pilots and fortunately he was a very strong individual. He was so goddamn strong that I would have done anything he recommended. I don't care what it was. If he said fly down the smokestack of a battleship, I would have done it. Unquote. Today's military leaders would be wise to remember the importance of strong combat leaders. December 5. One postscript. In January of 2002, Foss is stopped by airport security in Phoenix, who attempted to confiscate his Medal of Honor. He would say of the incident, quote, I was upset for the Medal of Honor, that they just didn't know what it even was. It represents all the guys who lost their lives, the guys who never came back, everyone who put their lives on the line for their country. You're supposed to know what the Medal of Honor is. Unquote. Thanks for listening.